this week on Pointing the Way with Pastor Shad Smith. Welcome to Pointing the Way, a ministry of the Northside Baptist Church in Dallas, Georgia. We pray you will find direction for living as we look into the Word of God today.
share what the most widely interpreted uh, positions are. Some people will read that passage of Scripture that we just read and say, Well, see there, a person can lose their salvation. And they'll use that passage right there uh, to explain that. Other people use this passage of Scripture to say uh, that this is a lost person that has rejected the gospel one time and they never again have an opportunity to be saved. God just looks at them and says, if you don't want to be saved, I'll never deal with you again. And there's that position. Then there are some that take this passage as if it has no meaning to us at all, that this was talking about a sin that could have only have been committed when the temple was still standing, the sin of going back into Judaism, uh, and it's a passage that is only for first century Jews and has nothing to do with us at all. And I'm going to talk about each of those a little bit uh, today, but I, I want to just start this morning dealing with some of the problems of interpreting this passage of Scripture in some of these ways. For example... For those that would say this passage is talking about losing your salvation, that presents an awful problem for people that believe you can lose your salvation. The awful problem is in verse number 6. Now, if you're one of those this morning and you're of the persuasion that you can lose your salvation and you use this text to prove that, then you'd better never lose it. Because if that's what you believe according to this text, verse number 6 would say once you lose it, you could never get it back. It says it's impossible to be renewed again unto repentance. So don't lose your salvation if you believe that you can lose your salvation. <laughs> Obviously, we're supposed to interpret the obscure with the obvious, and it's obvious. There's plenty of obvious teaching in the New Testament that you cannot lose your salvation. Genuine believers can't lose their salvation. Write these verses down in your margin. Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. You stay saved because God justifies you, not because you live good enough. Jesus said in John 10, verse 27, 28, and 29, I give them eternal life and they shall never, say that word with me, never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. You're not keeping yourself saved. You're not getting yourself saved. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In Ephesians 4.30, Paul says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Philippians 1.6 says, He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it. He will finish it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps the greatest proof that he's not talking in these verses about losing your salvation is because one of the finest arguments for eternal security is found just a few verses below our text in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17, 18, 19, and 20, where the writer says, God, who is willing more abundantly, verse 17, to show the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, 
that by two immutable things in which was it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who had fled for refuge to lay hold, lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Okay? So Scripture is blatantly clear. And today's message is not specifically about eternal security, but Scripture is blatantly obvious that the soul that is saved is eternally secure. So the passage can't be talking about losing your salvation. Now, some suggest this passage talks about somebody that is lost and uh, God's dealt with their heart and they've said no to the gospel and God says, okay, I'm done with you. And that may be true of some people that, uh, that cross a deadline. Certainly the Word of God says the Spirit of God will not always strive with a man. But uh, it's not true of all people uh, because I rejected the gospel. And God in His mercy dealt with me again. Uh, some of you wouldn't be here and saved today if God had stopped dealing with you after the first time. I think of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul heard and learned the gospel, yet he so rejected and so scorned uh, the gospel that he persecuted those that were preaching until God in his mercy dealt with him a second time on the road to Damascus. So there's no clear teaching that if you reject the gospel one time, you'll never have another opportunity to be saved. But there, the, it does need to be said, however, there is a time when God may stop striving with your heart or when He will stop striving with your heart. But Scripture never says it's after just the one time. So that doesn't seem to be uh, a clear interpretation. Some people think that this passage of Scripture has to do with Jews that could only commit the sin being talked about here while the first temple was standing. Well... Uh, we know today that just a few years after this is written, the first temple would be gone anyway. Uh, knowing that, the Holy Spirit inspired this text anyway. I, I don't seem to find good sense in that if the temple's about to be destroyed, why he would talk to him about going on and maturing. Uh, that interpretation doesn't seem to be an accurate handling of those verses. Then what is it? Well, if you come to all the preceding conclusions, there's only one other logical place that you can go, and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Now, it's a help probably to you that we've been going through Hebrews, and you already know the context of where we're at. You will remember last week, the writer of Hebrews has been urging those that are saved, but uh, they kind of uh, just stopped growing. He's urged them on to spiritual maturity. And so we're still in that context of talking to immature believers. And now these immature believers, they have started to digress in their walk with the Lord. And thus Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 uh, can be interpreted as God's warning to a backslide. That's what these verses are all about. Not specifically or, or generally just any old backslider. But in these verses, the writer of Hebrews appears to be talking to an unbroken backslider. An unbroken backslider is somebody that is not right with God, but they refuse to get right with God. They have so settled down in a backslidden condition that they're comfortable there. They plan on doing nothing to get back to the place of passion that they once were in. They're just settled down right there. This morning, 
I want to take these verses and explain the danger and the warning to the unbroken backslider, the backslider who has fallen and can't get up. There's four things in this passage of Scripture that the writer of Hebrews is trying to get into their heart. And if you'll walk with me through these things, there's something very important at the end uh, that's going to help some of you. I want you to notice in verses 4 and 5, he spends a little time, first of all, establishing their identity. He establishes their identity. How can we be sure that we're talking to a saved person here? Well, let the text speak, beginning in verse number 4. He says it's impossible. We're going to come back to that impossibility in just a second. But he says it's impossible for those who were once enlightened. The word once there means once and for all. Enlightened means to turn the light on. He says it's impossible for those who had the light turned on in their life. Now we know we can't be talking about a lost person right there because lost people don't have the light turned on. Lost men, lost women are walking in darkness. But saved people, we're not in the dark anymore. Somebody say amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6 says, God who commanded light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts. Saved people aren't in the dark. Uh, We're in the light. So he's talking here in verse number 4 about people who have had the light turned on in their life. Got to be talking about saved people. Look again at verse number 4. Those, he said, who have tasted of the heavenly gift. What's the heavenly gift? Well, that's God's gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some people have looked at that and say, well, the preacher didn't say they got saved. He said they tasted the heavenly gift. In other words, they didn't take it all in. They just kind of nibbled. They sampled that. Well, that's an interesting way to look at that word, tasted. But if you find how that word is used elsewhere in the New Testament, same word that uh, is used of Jesus when it says in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 that Jesus tasted death for every man. Now, I want to ask you something. Do you think Jesus sampled death? Or do you think he experienced it fully? That's what the word means here. He experienced it fully. These have experienced fully the gift of salvation. Let's keep going. We're trying to identify who he's talking about. Verse 4, the end of it. Uh, Those who were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. When you got saved, God's Holy Spirit came to live in your heart and to seal your heart. He does not withdraw himself from you. Hebrews chapter 11 says he will never leave us nor forsake us. Uh, Saying you lose the Holy Ghost goes against the obvious teaching of Ephesians 4.30 that says you're sealed until the day of redemption. The Holy Ghost had gone anywhere. Verse 5 says they tasted, same word as experience, they tasted the good word of God, they tasted the powers of the world to come. In other words, these people, they've experienced the power of the word of God, they've experienced the good word of God, they've experienced the heavenly gift of salvation. Doesn't all that sound like somebody that's been saved? We're talking about people that are saved, so there's only one remaining possibility of who the identity of the person in this passage of Scripture is. It's those same people we were talking about last week, those spiritual babies that were so dull of hearing. They wouldn't listen to anything that God was saying to them. They were refusing to grow in their faith, and now they are starting to backslide. He's talking to the backslidden believer. And in verse 4, he says about this backslider, For it is impossible. 
It's impossible for the backslider to do something. Now, if you want to know what's impossible for them to do, you have to go down to verse number 6. And in verse number 6, we see the writer of Hebrews explaining the impossibility. Explaining the impossibility. Put that up there for me, ladies. Explaining the impossibility. Thank you. Here's what's impossible. It's impossible, verse 4 and 5, for the saved person, the backslider. Now we come to verse 6. If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. Now why is it impossible for this backslider to repent? Well, look at the rest of the verse. Here's why. Seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. This is the unbroken backslider that lives week after week month after month, year after year, in spiritual decline, with absolutely no desire in their life to get on fire for the Lord. Their spiritual life has become cold. It's become lethargic. They are so indifferent. They are now a disgrace uh, in, in their Christian life. And their life, really, he says, you repeat Calvary all over again by the way you live. These backsliders, they willfully sin as if to say, I know I've been saved. I know I've been forgiven of my sins. But give me the hammer. Give me the nails. And let me one more time just drive a spot into the hands of Jesus and hurt him real good. Let me embarrass him. Let me shame him openly by willfully and defiantly committing sin without regret. This unbroken backslider says, I know why. I know what, what I am and I know how I am. I know I'm not what I used to be, but I really just don't give a rip anymore. I don't care. I'm comfortable the way I am. And the writer of Hebrews says right here, when you get in that frame of mind, there is an impossibility that weighs down upon you. What's the impossibility? Verse 6, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. Now notice it didn't say renew them unto salvation because we're not talking about a lost person. It says it's impossible to renew them again unto repentance. Now what is repentance? Repentance is turning from your sin. Repentance is getting right and in right fellowship with God, the writer of Hebrews says about this unrepentant backslider, he says it's impossible for a person who is putting Jesus to an open shame, it's impossible for that person to repent and get right with God as long as they are continuing to crucify Jesus afresh with their life. It's impossible for you to get right with God as long as you're continuing to shame God. A backslider will not repent. They will not get right with God until first they stop shaming Him. Until first uh, they get broken about their sin. Now I might be talking to somebody in this room today or listening uh, over the airwaves today and you may be living further from the Lord right now than you were last year. You need to get right with God. You know you need to get right with God. You know you're backslidden. But the truth of this scripture here says you will not get right as long as you're shaming Christ. It's impossible for you to turn to repent until you get so broken over those things in your life that are breaking the heart of God. 
Second Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance. It's impossible for you to repent until you realize what a shame your life has become to the God who saved you. But when brokenness comes, when godly sorrow comes, you say, what will happen? That old hard heart that sits through invitation and service week after week after week in complacency, that old hard heart begins to get soft. That old cold heart begins to warm begins to break, it gets humble. And all the resistance in your heart, all that pride, all that resistance toward God, it, it goes out the window, the independence is slain, and the backslider falls down in brokenness and submission and obedience and love to God. The psalmist said in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, he says, Oh God, thou wilt not despise. The truth today, folks, is that God desires for his children to have a broken heart over sin. God desires for his children's hearts to be broken by the same things that break his heart. If you sin today and it never breaks your heart, why would you ever repent? If it never bothers you, it never bothers you. Maybe somebody here today, conviction just doesn't move you anymore. And the reason it doesn't move you is because you've been backslidden so long, you've gotten so cold, so indifferent, so unbroken. What a sad place for you to be in. And it's impossible for you to get right with God until your heart gets broken. Now we come to verse 7 and verse 8. And in these verses, we see the writer of Hebrews envisioning the illustration. He gives an illustration and he wants them to see this as the illustration of their life. He shows them what's produced and what's not produced in the life of a backslider that refuses to be broken. Verse 7, he says, The earth drinketh in the rain that cometh off upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom its rest receiveth blessing from God. But look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, But that which bear thorns and briars is rejected. Nine to cursing whose end is to, be, is to be burned. Now he is talking here, this illustration, he takes him to the farm. He illustrates using a piece of land, a, a, a piece of land that is to produce fruit, it's to produce a harvest. The value of that land is determined by its ability to produce something. In this particular illustration, he says there's some land that gets rain and, and herbs begin to grow up. It begins to produce a harvest. Something happens. God blesses it. Something begins to grow from it. But then in verse number 8, he says there's another piece of land here and this particular piece of land, all it bears is thorns and briars. There's no harvest, no fruit at all. The only fruit of it, the thorns and the briars, that's not going to be worth anything. It's just going to end up in the fire. Now, he's not talking about the fire of hell. He's using the same illustration Paul used in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And Paul said in verse 12, If any man build upon this foundation gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire... The fire of God's judgment, he says. 
shall try every man's work of what sort of work it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereon, Paul said he'll receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Paul was talking about the works of a Christian's life. The fruit that's produced. That's what you're going to be rewarded for one of these days in heaven. It's not the land that's burned. It's not the believer that produces it that's burned. It's, it's the fruit of the land. And what it's saying here is that some of these Christians are so backslidden that their life is producing nothing that is going to be worthy of a reward when they get to heaven one day. One of these days they're going to stand before God. The life they lived here from the day they got saved to the day they died, that life is going to be tested by a fire. And the fire of test is going to, to, uh, uh, to, to bear out that nothing was produced in that life that was anything more than wood, hay, and stubble. In other words, in eternity, the work of your Christian life just burned up like that. It held no value at all. What the writer of Hebrews is warning us about today is the judgment seat of Christ for every believer. He's saying it's going to be a sad day for Christians when they get to heaven and they have absolutely no reward to offer the Lord Jesus. Why? Because they lived a lousy, lethargic, cold, unbroken, unrepentant Christian life. He's trying to get them to envision this land here. And he's saying what happens to this land is what's happening in some of your lives because there's no brokenness. You've gotten cold, but you don't care that you're cold. You've gotten indifferent, but you don't care that you're indifferent. And he's saying, I'm warning you, dear backslider, one of these days you're going to stand before God. And you're going to stand before the one that saved you, and you're going to have nothing on that day to offer him to say thank you. You think about that day. What a sad day when you're going to be empty-handed, have nothing to lay at the nail-pierced feet, to place into the nail-pierced hands of the one who died for your sins. What a sad day. He's telling us here that it doesn't have to be this way. Some of us have been at this place way too long. You hadn't been on fire in a long time. It's been too long since you've been cold. I was talking to somebody this week. Somebody I was their pastor years ago. And they told me about several years ago when they were ablaze. For Jesus. And they said, Preacher, I'm just not that way anymore. I'm just not that way anymore. I said, Why not? Fellow said, Well, I, I'm not really sure. I just don't have the passion that it used to be. And I said, Oh, dear brother, listen, you don't have to stay that way. He said, I wish it was the way I used to be. I said, It can't be. You don't have to stay that way. He said, well, how do I, how do I get out of the, the funk that I'm in and get back to the place of passion? I said, well, first of all, you've got to stop being lethargic about your spiritual condition. You've you got to start thinking about what your life right now is doing to God. 
how it's openly shaming the God that saved you. Think on that, and think on that, and think on that until it breaks your heart. Until tears begin to flow from your eyes again. And then when those tears begin to flow, kneel down on an altar and say, Oh God, I'm sorry for what I've done and not being what I should have been. I'm sorry for excuse after excuse, Sunday after Sunday. And God, if you just forgive my backsliding and use me the way you used to use me, God will do it. You don't have to settle down today for an unbroken, backslidden, fruitless life. God wants to bring every prodigal back home. I believe we come to the end of this passage of Scripture. The writer of Hebrews, he's very optimistic about these Christians. He doesn't end on a low note. Thank God it really ends in a positive way in verse number 9. For in verse 9, we come to this last verse in our text, and we find him in this last verse encouraging the instructed. He encourages the instructed. After all that's been said, after this stern warning, listen to how he encourages them in verse 9. He says, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. There's no doubt here that he has seen something in them. Something in their life once before that has encouraged him that they were much better than their present spiritual condition. He says, I'm persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. And the end of verse 9, he says, even though we thus speak of a backslider that won't get broken, it won't get right. It's just going to live his life till he dies in that backslidden condition. He says, I'm persuaded, I'm convinced that y'all aren't that way. He says, I really think there's something in your life that misses being on fire for God. I think there's something in your life that says, I don't want to shame Jesus. I love Jesus. I think there's something in your life that still wants to live for God. And he says, I believe you can get all this backslidden stuff, this unbrokenness behind you. You can move on to spiritual maturity. You can produce fruit in your life that accompanies salvation. And so he didn't give up. He didn't give up on them at the end. He said, I'm persuaded better days are coming. And I say this morning, I believe that about a lot of people in this room today. I believe, I'm no man's judge, but I'm an observer. And I believe in every congregation there are those that are sitting in church today that aren't as close to the Lord today as maybe they were a year ago, or five years ago, or ten years ago. Maybe they've lost their joy for some reason. But I'm encouraged that you're still here. I'm encouraged that you're in church this morning. And seeing you in church, it encourages me to tell you this. I believe there's still something in you that wants what should be. Or you'd have done fallen by the wayside completely. I believe there's something about your life that though it may not be what it needs to be, you don't want to continue to shame Christ openly by your lack of passion. You want to be right. 
You say, Lord, preacher, that is me. I, I'm not what I, what I once was. And I've lost a little bit of my purpose, but you're right. I, I don't want to shame him. I love him. Let me tell you what you need to do. All you need to do today to get back on your cutting edge is to get unsatisfied with your present spiritual condition. And the way you do that is let God, in this invitation today, let Him break your heart. Let Him break your heart. Let Him break your heart over those things in your life that are breaking His heart. Let tears flow in your life again. Any backslider can get right with God if there's brokenness. But until you get broken, let me tell you what you are. You're that one that has fallen and can't get up. It's not going to happen until you get broken. If you'll allow God to do what He's trying to do today, if you'll allow Him to break your heart, allow Him to bring you from the place of shame to the place again of fruitfulness and service, and you'll be renewed to repentance. Thank you for joining us today. Pointing the Way is a ministry of Northside Baptist Church in Dallas, Georgia. If you would like to contact the ministry, you may write Pointing the Way, 120 Northside Church Road, Dallas, Georgia, 30132. Or visit us on the web at www.northsidedallas.com. Until next time, open God's Word to point the way for direction in your life.